And we've got such trust here in our IT department because they know I have no incentive to make their life disruptive. And in fact, I killed that term here, disruptive technology. I hate it. It was never intended to be that. But greedy technology companies keep calling it disruptive technology. The inventor of it is actually, it was disruptive innovation. And so who wants their life disrupted? My job is to make people thrive and survive in a digital world we all find ourselves. And so if you will do that, the next iteration of something, maybe it's VR, maybe it's XR, maybe it's the metaverse, they're on board. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with co-host Mike Jones. Hey, Mike. Hey, Tiffany. Glad to be here and excited for our guest today. I know you are. Mike has been excellent at recruiting guests in the XR, VR, AR space. And I've heard quite a lot about the person he brought onto the show today, but I'm excited to learn even more. So today we are welcomed by Mike Matthews. Mike is currently the VP for Global Learning and Innovation at ORU, where he has served for the past eight years. Mike has over 24 years of experience as a senior level IT executive, bringing creative solutions that value the end users of education, technology, and business process management. These solutions have benefited the end users of higher education, manufacturing, and high technology company products. Mike spent 12 years working at Cray Research, where he trained hundreds of supercomputer engineers across major industry sectors. Mike has held positions as a VP of Innovation, Chief Information Officer, General Manager of CIOs, Chief Strategist for Innovation, Business Development Officer, Trainer, Teacher, and Vice President of Academic Services for Leading Corporations in Higher Education. Mike has been a CIO within higher ed and corporate training for over 19 years. He's spoken in 10 different countries during the past five years to education governments and leaders on educational modalities. Mike is the author of three books and hundreds of articles on theology, education, and technology that is shifting the worldview for everyone. Mike was named the 2022 Education 2.0 Award recipient, 2021 Icon Leadership Award, 2021 Leading Education Technologist by Chief Information Officer Reviews, 2020 Top 20 Business Leaders by Industry Wired, 2019 Top 10 Innovators by Industry ERA, one of America's Top 30 Education Innovators in 2017, and a 2018 CIO 100 Award winner. Wow, we are so thrilled to welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast, Mike Matthews. Thanks for being here, Mike. Hey, what a privilege to be part of your show. Wonderful stuff happening. Grateful that I'm part of it. Thanks. And we'll try not to be too confusing to our audience with the whole Mike and Mike thing. We'll do our best. We also learned <laughs> in the pre-show conversation, they have the same middle name. So we may be in trouble on this one, but no, I think it's going to be great. Mike Jones, would you kick us off with some getting to know you questions? Yes, absolutely. So Mike Matthews, we always enjoy to get to know our guests a little bit better before we drive into the nitty gritty of the data points. So our first question for you today is what's your go-to takeout food? Go-to takeout food is salmon. Okay. At the right place though, right? You got to <laughs> find the right place that has salmon, but I just love salmon. Is this like smoked salmon or salmon any flavor? It could be any flavor, but it's the glazing that makes all the difference in the world. Okay, good to know. 
All right. And speaking of go-to things, what's your go-to virtual reality game? You know, my favorite game now, virtual reality, even though you could call it something different, is Roblox. Now, Roblox is all kinds of things, but why it's my favorite is simply because I'm watching young people be fully engaged with it and they're learning, they're collaborating, and they're having their own initiations within that Roblox. And as hard as I try to look for something bad in it, I can't find it. That's great. We're going to have to ask more questions about that. I know. I feel like in the pre-show preparations, just reading some of the things that you've written somewhere, I feel like I saw that you said at least one of your children happened to play this game. Is that true? Yep, that's true. Grandchildren are playing Roblox and education better be careful because in about three years, they expect this. And I don't blame them that the engagement is such a high level. Yes. I think that one of the powers of these tools is that engagement level. But we're going to get in more of that in just a little bit too. But that's a great tip for coming soon content. (laughs) In another life, you're a professional athlete, or maybe in this life. What sport do you play? And what team do you play for? Easy. I play football, NFL football for the Green Bay Packers at Lambeau Field. Even has the field down. Look at that. And our listeners, you know, you can't see him right now, but he's actually decked out in a full jersey this very moment. No, (laughs) just just messing. (laughs) Never missed the game for about nine years going there. There's something cool about the underdog, small town, Wisconsin competing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have an opportunity to travel there, visit? Many times. I grew up right outside of Green Bay, graduated high school from there. And so never missed a game. And then the years following, probably once a year, I'll get up there and enjoy a game. I don't think there's anything quite like sitting in a stadium full of fans like that and the energy of the place and space. Mm -hmm. So we know you grew up just outside of Green Bay, kind of taking us into the professional realm a bit. Tell us a little bit more about your story. So race outside Green Bay, enter into education, get your first job. What took you from, you know, there to where you are now? Sure. So I went to college in Minneapolis, St. Paul at the Dunwoody Institute, which did nothing but train you on hardcore technology, right? It's, there's no summer break. You just go at it. And so the supercomputer company, Cray Research, would hire all their engineers from there because they necessarily couldn't speak or write, but they sure could fix a supercomputer. <laughs> wow. So I get hired there after graduating and just enjoyed it. But at the same time, I knew there was something missing. And so as much as people would knock on liberal arts and all those things, I found myself going back to school to pick up on speech, writing, all the soft skills that a lot of people overlook. And so probably about four years later, I had more of a well-rounded thought pattern about not just working on things, but how do you explain things to people? So I was selected to be one of the instructors at Cray Research. And that day we were training probably 30 field engineers every six months to go out and live with the supercomputer. Wow. And I fell in love with training, not education, training. And there's a big difference between training and education. And I didn't know that at the time, of course. And so through some friends in Springfield, Missouri, they said, hey, we know this real fabulous technologist who would be great for the Assemblies of God colleges. There's 17 Assembly of God colleges out of Springfield, Missouri, and he could help us get into video conferencing, internet, 
and so forth. So long story short, it took me probably a year to get there. Just not for sure that's what I wanted to do. And yet I found it very enticing to try and go and change. But that was when I had the wake up call to how much education doesn't want to change and corporate training wants to change. Oh, so true. Yeah. And so, in fact, the president in that day, I had him crying twice in my arms because he said to me, Mike, what's the difference between working here at a religious university and working at Create Research? Looked at him. I said, they're more honest at the corporate place. He said, wait, back up. What can you say that? I said, and I gave him examples, you know, but long story short, it was, you know, God has a way of bringing people to rub off on each other. And during that duration of three years, we put the first courses on the internet, it would have been 1998 timeframe and got documented in New York Times with Oxford University and Duke University, which is a huge deal for them. And at that time I knew, oh, I'm gonna go back and work in Wisconsin now, I got them where they needed to be. And there was a merger that took place between two of the universities. So I go back to Wisconsin and work for a company called SunGuard Higher Education, which eventually evolves into Lucian, which is the number one provider of the ERP system and spent 12 years working there. Now, what was unique about working there was colleges would hire the outsourcing arm of Aleutian or SunGuard Higher Education in that day to help make significant accomplishments with an investment. It was sort of like the perfect world of understand the issues with education, but where can I work where the goals are such that they really want to change and not just listen to all the noise on campus? Because the most noise on campus usually wins out. And whether it's a vote or consensus, whatever form you want to sort of label it. Now, I'm not offended by any of that. I just realize that one of the liberties in life is that when you can finally admit truth, it liberates you. And so truth is very liberating. And so I spent 12 years working at SunGuard Higher Education. And then, long story, at Oral Roberts University, it got some connection going on there. And it took me about a year. Next thing you know, eight years ago, I'm here at Oral Roberts University. And just find a time of my life before I came here, though, I made sure they're going to do what they wanted to do, you know, that, hey, we want to hire you. We want you to get us to the White House, get us to the United Nations, that kind of stuff. And sure enough, it happened. But at the same time, I tell a funny story about education, and that is we're going to put in a million dollars worth of immersive learning with using virtual reality. And they had never signed a contract here at ORU that big. In the presence, are you sure about this? I said, yep, this is, the, this is the future. I'll stake my career on it. It's good. Okay, but it kept stalling and stalling. So I had to go to them and say, okay, you got this global learning center going in. We're not going to have it ready if we don't sign that contract. So about a week goes by, and I have a saying in life that says, I don't believe in miracles. I rely on them. I need about five a day to make it through a day. Um, (laughs) So relying on my miracle, Six Flags in Dallas, Texas, did a big splash in the Dallas paper that Six Flags now signed a deal with Oculus VR glasses that the roller coaster riders can put on VR glasses and have a VR experience. I clipped that out and send it to the people who are going to sign that contract. I said, hey, I found another solution so you don't have to sign that. We can put a roller coaster in our parking lot. (laughs) and do what Six Flags did. However, I checked on the insurance policy for the roller coaster and it cost more than the million dollars. And it was signed (laughs) a short time later. And somebody said, you know, Mike, you got to sometimes get our attention with very contextual things like that. Long story short, that was seven and a half years ago. We've never regretted it. It's made a big difference here at Oral Roberts University. 
So that brings you up sort of where I'm at now, doing a lot of stuff with artificial intelligence, Web3. I'm doing a lot of holographic stuff as well, because it all sort of blends in together now. So when people say, hey, Mike, what's your prediction for anything? I said, the truth is we finally live in a hyper-connected world. Internet of Things 15 years ago, artificial intelligence, the internet getting faster. We now can see things integrate together. So technology by itself is no longer a science, it's an art. And so the best technologists really become artists. What is it that we wanna design to produce some kind of output that nobody else could produce? And if you stripped everything aside, that's who Steve Jobs was. He was more of an artist than he was a technologist. Someone called him a marketeer, but he artfully convinced people of what they're gonna want before it was even done. That's powerful. Thousands of questions. We could have a whole podcast on the difference between training and education, <laughs> right? And we just recently had a question posed to us about chat GPT and what, how that's going to affect higher education and plagiarism and that type of stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but before we jump that boat, let's baseline this with a simple question for those in our audience that aren't as familiar. What is extended reality or XR and why should higher education be interested in it? Sure. So XR, this is my definition in a layperson's term, so I can help explain. It stands for extended reality, which is a offshoot of what people were calling virtual reality and augmented reality, mixed reality at the next level. So no different than your smartphone generation one, two, three, and so forth. The same thing has happened. AR, VR, mixed reality, XR. Now, XR, though, by its nature, takes into account media and studio production, where there's a church out in Colorado called Flatirons Church, which does live scenes in the background using VR. So if the preacher decides he wants to go and speak on Gethsemane, Gethsemane pops up automatically, and it doesn't look like he's standing in wow. front of the screen. He's immersed in it, and that's the key, hmm. full immersion is really where people want to go. When I talk to people about XR, I say Mandalorian. Oh yeah, I know the Mandalorian. I said, well, that's XR. Doing production where you don't need a green screen and things become both fused with virtual reality and real reality together. That's pretty cool. I think Jesus did that when he walked through the walls and the, the so forth. I could tell you all kinds of cool XR stories in the Bible that people say, oh, I never thought of it that way. And then I say, well, you will now, because God is smarter than all this technology combined. Absolutely. Yeah, I was looking at touring a studio down in Nashville or close to Nashville that is big LCD walls. And the whole thing, it's a convex LCD wall. They've gone away from the green screen and they're shooting videos, like you said, on location, but not. Yep. So in fact, that's what I'm doing with holographic. I just got back from Las Vegas to receive an award two weeks ago. And while I'm there, I wanna tell a story about what happened at Mandela Bay in 2017 with the shooter who killed 60 people, 413 wounded. And so I'm not guaranteed when I get there that I'm gonna get a video spot or there's gonna be any quietness. So I pre-record here, go down and overlay my avatar, which is really me, in front of the Mandel Bay and make myself as tall as it or small and say, I'm here in life, but I'm also here in my digital twin. It moves people to say, wow, how did you know to do that? Well, I got tired of video people. 
saying, hey, get on my <laughs> agenda and we got to do a video script and then we got to edit the video script. Then we got to videotape you and you get a 10 takes at it. And then by the time you get your video, you forgot what you were trying to accomplish with it. And so I've been privileged to be a big mouth in that whole area to say, hey, I love video people. I really do. But it's time for a change that this is way too archaic. And I think churches around the nation are finally getting that. And thus the Web 3.0 conference. What do you do with four, five, six video people in a church when you really don't need that anymore? Okay, good point. This gives me so much to think about. First, I have to go back and comment on your professional journey. The very, very beginning when you went right into the corporate world, working on the supercomputers and then decided that liberal arts, huh, there might be some value there, something missing. It's interesting because in some of the pre-work for this show, one of the things I commented to Mike Jones about is, wow, how does one person be so skilled in technology, but really shine when it comes to thought leadership and communication, both you know, verbal and written. And so kudos to you for making that choice. <laughs> Go back and round out your education. I love that. Yep. Thank you, Tiffany. Yeah. But also, you know, you mentioned that when you made that leap and you moved into the education space and working with folks in higher ed, you were taken back by maybe the pace of things and the reaction to changes that you'd hope to see. What are the kinds of assumptions that educators or those in education make around XR? You know, I think in XR, the first phobia that it's not as bad as it used to be 15 years ago when online came onto the scene is plagiarism or copyright. The copyright police will be after you because you're taking something from somebody else. And if people really understood the law and what copyright was about, they wouldn't fear as much because it's not the panacea that people have made it out to be. So the fear really is this, I believe, is we were the first university in the world to sign an enterprise-wide agreement with Zoom back in 2012, maybe 13, because I was convinced if you only buy 12 licenses of something, it's the first excuse faculty can make why they're not using it. Well, there's only 12 licenses and they were checked out. Mm, and so right. that helped prove that if we could sign deals with every vendor to do enterprise-wide agreements, no one was shortchanged, and that would start a much better adoption process. And that happened almost on every single thing I did. And so when you can make things available and simplify, people will use it. So even with Zoom, we went to great extents because the only way technology can fail in the year 2022, now 2023, is to let preachers, teachers, and managers touch it. <laughs> um, you know, and people, you guys laugh like everybody else does, but I say that because they forget their login, they forget their password. Yeah. yeah. And so the only thing people don't forget is their phone number. And so rerouted everybody's login and password to their phone number and called it a phantom login in Zoom. So Zoom automatically connected. So faculty, when they start seeing that the IT department or resource department, whatever it may be called there, that you will bend over backwards to make their life easy, they trust you. And we've got such trust here in our IT department because they know I have no incentive to make their life disruptive. And in fact, I killed that term here, disruptive technology. I hate it, it was never intended to be that, but greedy technology companies keep calling it disruptive technology. The inventor of it is actually, it was disruptive innovation. And so who wants their life disrupted? My job is to make 
people thrive and survive in a digital world we all find ourselves. And so if you will do that, the next iteration of something, maybe it's VR, maybe it's XR, maybe it's the metaverse, they're on board. They know this stuff is here. And if you watch your faculty ranks in your university or ours, they're aging. And it's something unique that we've never lived in before is those same professors who are fighting smartphones maybe 15 years ago no longer are fighting the metaverse because their grandkids are playing it. And there's something mm. when grandkids enter the scene, not kids, you know, I got two grandkids, so I know that feeling. Yes. And just yes. say, wow, what a different world. And so, you know, it's the best of times in so many different ways if you can simplify things. But if they're complicated and people have to come and check things out. And so back to the question at hand was this, is faculty have two main belief systems. I teach, so I know I'm underpaid and overworked. And those are always at play subconsciously. So anytime you're asking me to do something extra, I've already got that in play. So the more I can convince people that I'm actually helping you save time, the more they're on board and willing to be a pilot course or do something different. So a lot of things we did here, but now keep in mind, I've been doing this for like 20 years, made sure I can't afford to fail. So the last thing I'll mention about that, I could not afford to start this VR immersive learning thing and have the first professor say, well, I would have used it, but you didn't have a personal computer in VR for me to use for my class, or I'm in nursing and you didn't have a simulator for me to use, couldn't afford to do that. So we made sure that from an enterprise perspective, we had almost everything and anything. So people couldn't use that as an excuse. And 24 hours later, we were able to reproduce. And that's one of the cool parts about the world we live in. A lot of people in education would know it as open education resources, OER. But the companies like Sketchfab, others have already made all their drawings available in VR and AR or XR even. So we had access almost instantly to over 3 million assets. So anybody could ask a question and we were able to bring it up on the device they wanted. And that's pretty cool to be able to do that. And I took it as a personal challenge to make sure that that would be the case. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, yeah. get you up in the morning for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you kind of already answered the next question because it was talking about what it is to be an early adopter and how do we motivate faculty. So you mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, making it easy to log in, making it available across the enterprise, and then as their grandkids come about. So you kind of answered that. So I'm going to switch that question just a little bit. As an early adopter of this type of technology, what was the surprise and what were the best takeaways or best implementations of it? You know, the surprise, two surprises, people will laugh over this. So we're building this global learning center about let's say it's two blocks away from the main academic building people are telling me the whole two years it's being built no one's going to come down there mike that's too far to walk that's too far to walk the first week it's open it was packed out i find out it's packed out by people teachers who are 65 70. i had to go ask them i said why why are you down here teaching instead of up there oh mike you don't understand the parking's easier down here <laughs> um, so, but that's how you find out that theory, I'm overworked, underpaid. If you make my life easy, I'm in with you. But keep in mind, it wasn't just that. It was sort of, all you got to do is enter your phone number. You can't forget your phone number. In fact, you can look up a law called Miller's Law, plus or minus two. That's how the seven-digit phone number in America was implemented. Miller's Law, plus or minus two. People will remember seven things, paragraphs, 
or sentences or digits, and they can't go beyond that, some to nine, some to five. But nonetheless, it worked out beautifully. The second thing that surprised us was it wasn't necessarily the engineering entities or computer science that really jumped on board. It was more the liberal arts. Somebody wanted to do a social program, take the VR and recreate a environment in somebody's home and let people walk through it. And she became promoted to like the statewide social worker, this or that, because of that one example. Wow. Well, the other thing I'll say is that winning awards, I've been to a lot of places. I've got many awards, too many to even worry about. I got one or two or whatever, but it's many. Now, I'm shocked at how many educators will go crazy over a $15 plastic award um, <laughs> because it recognizes them in their category. And they don't get that much recognition outside of students, you know, saying they're a great teacher or evals. So anyway, we won, let's say, 10 awards the first two years, proving that we are transforming education. The next year, I made a decision to help faculty win those awards. So we helped them and they were just all on board. When they feel engaged, they're no different than students who feel engaged. And they started understanding how this was all happening. Now, the other thing, though, that was beneficial was a lot of donations came in after it was already paid for. When industry in your community finds out you're doing something that they're already doing, they're happy with that. Just so many different things. We could talk an hour on, you know, one thing begat another thing, which created another thing. So imagine we created our first dorm that was built and we were looking for X amount of millions to fund it. We could now take the CAD drawings from that new building that's not built and walk donors through it and say, this is where your name's going to be. This is where the picture of you will be. And they loved it. Same with our golf facility. It's true. Most educational universities think they're innovative. Whether they are, I'm not going to argue that. But when you start that snowball going downhill of innovation, it just propels. And other people want to get on board. And I mean, I had probably four faculty come up and apologize two years into it and say, man, we thought it would never make it. And now we want to say thank you. <laughs> oh, OK. You know, I'm on board now. I think in a previous conversation, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you had mentioned you took that 1 million and it multiplied. Oh, yeah. The 1 million multiplied many times over. So I'll make sure it's clear because you could look up the media releases on this. The Global Learning Center building was $8.5 million. The technology within that $8.5 million facility was $1 million on augmented and virtual reality. And so through the course, if you come into the building, you'll see people's names all over the place who donated 300,000, 100,000, 50,000. They wanted their names because this has been the first breakthrough in quite some years where ORU was on the front page. We hit the USA Today. But, you know, oddly enough, I don't think I would have got the support, even with my roller coaster story, if we didn't have that first win, which was the Fitbit watch that. We were the first university to have all students have a Fitbit watch, freshmen first and sophomores. And we took some heat at first, but we ended up breaking a school record of 500 magazines and journals who told the story, some negative, but most positive. And I said, that's the price for innovation. If you want to be an innovator, you're going to take it. But if it pays off and if you planned well, it will, you'll get the rewards of that. So, you know, things just started taking off. We never like to stop the conversation short, but that's what we're gonna do for now. We'll be back next week for part two with Mike Matthews on XR and higher ed. Join us next week on the Digital to Learn podcast. 
Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.